Tonight we'd like to continue in our study of the book of Esther. We'll be looking primarily at chapter 3. The book of Esther is a, a very unusual book in a number of ways. Some have called it a book of the romance of God's providence. And while we see the providential hand of God all the way through the Bible, in the book of Esther we see how it rules and overrules in a very unusual manner, an unusual way. The book of Esther is one of five books that the Jews call the writings. The other five was the book of Ruth, uh, Lamentations, uh, the Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and the book of Esther. The name of God is not found in the book of Esther. There's only two books in the Bible. There's the case. The other one's the Song of Solomon. And the word pray, or prayed or prayer, is not found in the book of Esther. Now, I didn't really realize that until uh, just recently. I knew the name of God was not there, but the, the word prayer not not there. There's no example where Mordecai or Esther ever prayed. I'm not saying they didn't, but there's no reference to it. There's no recording of it. And I think one of the main reasons for that is that when the children of Israel were taken to Babylon in captivity, the Lord said they'd be there for 70 years, and then they wouldn't return. When you read the book of Second Chronicles, the 36th chapter, you'll find under Darius where the opportunity for the Israelites, the Jewish people, to go back to Palestine was granted them. And some went back to Palestine, but quite a few did not. And Mordecai and Esther were two of the Jews that did not go back to Palestine. From that point of view, we find that they were not in the will of God. It was God's will for Israel to settle the land of Palestine, the land of Canaan, as we oftentimes refer to it. They would have settled there, have their identity there. They would have separated themselves from all the other nations there. They were not to intermarry. They were not to interact. They were to destroy their images and their, and their altars and everything else because all the things that God wanted Israel to be, the other nations were not. He did not want them to be influenced by them. And so... It was God's will for them to be there, but a number of Jews, including Mordecai and Esther, did not return. And they were scattered over two continents. This kingdom here, the Medes Persian kingdom, is so vast, or was so vast at the time, uh, it covered, again, 127 provinces and covered two different continents. Mordecai and Esther are going to be highly blessed in God, and they're going to have some outstanding qualities about them. But they were out of the will of God. I'm just thankful of God's ruling and overruling in His providence. You know, it just seems like the Lord's people have an attitude sometimes that they know a little bit better than God. You know, when God settled Israel in the land of Canaan, when He brought them across Jordan, there was 12 tribes. But two and a half tribes decided they didn't want to go across. They decided they'd stay on the other side, on the western side. And the reason given for it is this. They saw the land was good for cattle. Well, it might have been. But I believe the land of Canaan was good for cattle. <laughs> and this land was so good, so rich, and so fertile, I'm quite positive the land of Canaan would have been a better place for them and their cattle than on the western side of the River Jordan. Now, they did cross over, the men did, and help fight to occupy the land. But then they went back and they settled outside of the land of Canaan. That could not have been for their best interest, but God didn't allow it. 
When you look in Genesis 19, God is going to destroy two cities and, and other cities in the area. A lot of times that gets overlooked. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But God is going to deliver a man by the name of Lot out of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And when the angels took him and his wife and his two daughters out, of course they told them not to look back. And we find where Lot's wife looked back. She's turned to a pillar of salt. But the angels tells Lot to flee into the mountain. And you know what Lot said? He said, I, I, no, no, I, I can't flee to the mountain. Sure as I flee to the mountain, some evil will happen and I'll die. I'll be killed in that mountain. You think God is going to tell him to go somewhere where that's going to happen? So he said, here, here's a little city over here, the city of Zoar. He says, allow me to go to that city. And God, through the angel, said, okay, I'll, I'll let you go there. It's interesting, after God destroyed the two cities with fire and brimstone, that he left the city of Zoar and went into the mountain. It's just our nature, I suppose. Even though it's God telling us, it's just like, you know, it's okay. I, I know that's all right, but uh, I think I, I, I know a better way. And you don't. I can hear you. You do not. Your way will never exceed and be more beneficial than God's way. Now, the third chapter opens up with a new person coming to our attention. The man's name is Haman. But it says, and after these things, I want to go back just briefly and review a few things in the first two chapters we looked at last time. We are reduced to a king, his queen, his counselors, Mordecai, and Esther. Some Gentiles and two Jews. We found the king to be a man that uh, enjoyed wine. He was a man that was very proud and also a man that became angry very easily. Any combination of those three, pride, anger, and alcohol, is not good. You put all three together and you got disaster. <laughs> Find where the king was a man who uh, didn't always think things through. And while his heart was merry with wine, he decided he wanted to parade his wife, the queen, before everyone, and she refused to do so. She disobeyed the king's commandment. Now, we know very little about her, but what I do know is commendable. She knew this just was not proper. This was not right for her to come before a lot of people and all of them in a drunken state. <laughs> just wasn't right. But it created problems for the king because she was the queen and she was his wife. She disobeyed him and things didn't look good for him. So he got the advice of his counselors. They advised that she be disposed, taken off the, you know, her position as queen. And then that a search be made for a new queen. And the king thought that was a great idea. He's probably still high. He thought that was a great idea. So that's exactly what took place. And so all the fair maidens of the kingdom were set aside and brought under the care of a man by the name of Hegeth. But when you, there's one that was brought by the name of Esther. Now she's a Jew in foreign territory in a pagan culture. But she's so beautiful she gets selected. No one knows she's a Jew. And her uncle is Mordecai. No one knows he's a Jew. He's at the gate of the city, which means he had obtained a political office of some kind. That's where the transactions uh, of businesses took place, outside the king's gate. And so that's where he's at. We find, again, he was her uncle. He raised her. Her mother and daddy died. He raised her. So, so he was like a, a father unto her. Now... You're going to find where all these women, these fair maidens, were set aside for a year. 
And for the first six months of the year, I mean, they were pampered for a year. Trust me, they were pampered for a year. It's like a woman going to a beauty salon every single day for a year. <laughs> and the first six months, uh, she was just showered uh, with perfumes. And another six months, she was uh, given all kinds of oils and one thing and another of her skin and her beauty, etc. But the Bible tells us that Esther was brought into favor with this man that was in charge. And then the time came, she was going to be brought before the king. She was brought in favor of all those that was involved in this. Now, that's a very important statement. They were brought into favor. You'll find that used in the case of Daniel. You'll find it in the case of Joseph. That's God in his providence literally doing something. When we say God provides, that's what you know, the word providence means. It means to provide. Obviously, the word provides in the word providence. We're literally talking about God actually doing things on behalf of his children. The heart of the king, for example, Proverbs 21.1, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He, uh, you know, he takes that heart and he impresses that heart, impresses that mind. It's just like the rivers of water. He turns it whatsoever he pleaseth. That's just not figures of speech. That's, that's real. These are real words describing what God can do and God has done throughout the history of mankind here upon the face of this earth. So we find God highly involved all the way through the book of Esther, although his name is not mentioned. And there's no example of Mordecai uh, or Esther or any other Jew praying to God. And I'm telling you, these are some praying conditions right here. So now we're introduced. Well, let me get back up. When she's brought before the king, the Bible says the king loved her. She was brought into favor with the king. Now, as I mentioned a number of times before, how in the world can somebody like Joseph, who was a young Jewish boy that was hated and uh, envied, and his brothers put him in a pit and then sold the Ishmaelites down to the land of Egypt, how in a few short years could this man be elevated to be second in command of the most powerful country in the world at that time, that is the Egyptians? It's, it's incredible and amazing. Well, how in the world is a little maid named Esther how in the world, as she was in the land of the Medes Persian Empire, being one that was brought there, actually there as a result of being took into Babylonian captivity, and then they were all scattered, how in the world is she going to be able to wind up being the queen of this king? Well, of course, only through the operation of God, only through God's providence, because things like this take place, and things like that happen. I thought uh, of Elder Guy Hunt. Now, some of you, a lot of you knew Elder Guy Hunt down in Alabama. A wonderful primitive Baptist preacher. Sounded the sound of his preaching many times. My heart's been warmed and was edified many times. Of course, he's passed away to be with the Lord now. He got elected twice as the governor of the state of Alabama. He didn't even have a college education. And he got elected twice in the 90s, late 80s and 90s, as the governor of the state of Alabama. It's amazing how things can take place when the hand of God's involved, when the hand of God moves in the lives of people, you see. So we come here to the third chapter of the book of Esther. It says, and after these things, the king is going to promote a man by the name of Haman. Now, Haman is a real-life villain, trust me. <laughs> Not many people you're ever going to find in history or in the Bible any more wicked than Haman. Also a man of great pride. Since he was promoted, he was advanced, and he set, set above all the other seats of all the other officials. In other words, he's next in command at this point 
unto the king himself. He's like the king's right-hand man. He's like the king's prime minister. Doesn't tell us why he got promoted. Just says he promoted him. King could just do that on a whim. And it looks like he studied this man's life, this king here. He did a lot of on the whim uh, <laughs> actions and making decisions. So he promotes this man by the name of Haman. Now we're told that Haman was an Aganite. That means he was a descendant of the Amalekites. That's very important. The Amalekites first come to our attention in the book of uh, Exodus, 17th chapter of Exodus. And here you're going to find when Israel comes across the Red Sea into the wilderness, they face their first battle. And the first battle is against the Amalekites. This is that familiar battle where Moses went on top of the mountain and sat on a rock and he had air on one hand and her on the other. And as long as his hands were lifted up, then Israel you know, won the battle. It swung in their favor. But if his hands came down, uh, then the, you know, the battle swung in favor of the enemy. So Aaron Hur held his arms up. Such a beautiful picture, uh, you know, of, of the support that uh, the man of God needs from the people of God. When the battle was over and Israel won the battle, God instructed Moses to write that he would make war with the Amalekites from generation to generation, and he would utterly put out the remembrance of the Amalekites forever. Now God had Moses write that down, literally. Over in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul, the first king of Israel, is going to go out and do battle. He's going to go out and do battle against the Amalekites. God instructs him to destroy every Amalekite, every single one of them. He's to bring back no spoils of the victory. He's to destroy everything. Well, he won the battle. He won the victory by God's help. But when he came back, he brought the king with him. And he brought back the very best of the oxen and, and the sheep. And Saul come, Samuel comes on the scene. And when he does, the first thing Saul says is, I've done what the Lord told me. I've, I've been obedient to the Lord. Uh, the Lord does not uh, accept partial obedience. <laughs> and this is exactly what Saul did. And so Samuel responds by saying, well, if that's the case, and how do I, why do I hear the lowing of the oxen, the bleeding of the sheep? I wouldn't hear the sound of these animals if you'd done what God told you to do because you were not to bring any animal back. You'd just slay every single animal and every single Amalekite. Had Saul done that, Haman wouldn't be here. Anytime we fail in the slightest degree to do what God tells us, it's going to come to pass. Something is going to reflect that down the road somewhere in our lives, you see. You're going to find where the Amalekites came through Esau. Esau's a twin brother, obviously, of Jacob. And we know the conflict that Jacob and Esau had throughout the years, right? And then when Saul is slain, a man comes and tells David what happened. And he tells how he came upon Saul and how Saul, you know, uh, was there. And he took and slew Saul because he knew he was the enemy of David. And David asked him who he was. You know who he was? He was an Amalekite. <laughs> David ended up slaying him. That was the wrong thing for him to say. He was an Amalekite. That's who Haman is. He's a descendant of the Amalekites. And this man is very wicked. If you read Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, you'll find six things the Lord hates, and the seventh is abomination in his sight. You'll see all seven of these playing out in the life of Haman. A proud look. He that speaketh lies. Has feet that swift to run 
to wickedness and mischief, a heart that devises the evil imaginations. He that soweth this cord among the brethren, just to name a few. You read that, and you find every single one of them in the life of this man here. Now, the king commanded that everybody should bow and do this man reverence. Well, they all did but one man. <laughs> His name is Mordecai. He will not bow to him. Now, you might think at first hand this is because he's very familiar with the Ten Commandments, of course. And the first two commandments is, I shall have no other gods before me, and I shall not make any graven image anything in heaven or earth beneath the earth. And that is absolutely true. But that's not what the case is here. Just to bow before somebody did not mean that you had another God besides the true and living God. It did not. I find in Genesis 33 where Jacob meets his brother Esau. Now remember, he's been fearful of Esau for a long time because he had deceived his father. He took the birthright, belonged to Esau. And now he knows that they're about to meet. And when they meet, he's going to get a surprise reaction. He's going to find that Esau now is very favorable toward him. And the I, I, only thing I can put to that is, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, two different times, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. That's exactly what God did. But the Bible says when they got together that Jacob, first of all, bowed before Esau. And then all those with Jacob, they bowed before all the descendants of Esau. I find where David was being pursued by Saul. And David and his men were in a cave. And Saul then also came in the cave, not knowing that David then was in the cave. And while they slept, David's men encouraged him to slay Saul. He says, this is your opportunity. God has so arranged, well, you now have the opportunity to slay him, and you'll not have to flee any longer. And David heard the words, but the Bible says his men were stayed by the words of David. They loved David so much, respected David so much, that when David says you should not touch the Lord's anointed, they didn't touch him. And then we find where David and him go out of the cave, and then there's uh, Saul and them when they awake, we find where they actually communicate with each other. And the Bible says that David, in speaking to Saul, bowed before Saul. He showed respect unto the Lord's anointing is what he's doing here. He's showing, he wasn't worshiping Saul. He was showing respect unto God's anointed. And while he knew that Saul was his enemy, he also knew that he was the king of Israel. And from that point of view, God's anointed. And therefore, he would not harm Saul. He'd have another opportunity. He'd have two golden opportunities to do away with Saul and not have to fear him anymore. And neither time did he take advantage of it. But we see him bowing, you see. When Abraham negotiated with the men of Heth, when his wife Sarah died, you read in Genesis chapter 23, while he's negotiating for a piece of land to bury his wife Sarah, the Bible says that Abraham bowed before Heth. He wasn't worshiping Heth. But he was showing respect unto Heth and in their negotiations about this. And he ended up buying a piece of property, buying a piece of land there and burying his wife, Sarah. So the fact that he wouldn't bow is not because, I don't believe it's because it was a violation here of the first two of the Ten Commandments. But you see, I believe Mordecai knew that Haman was an Agonite. 
a descendant of the Amalekites. And he knew what Moses written down. He knew what God had Moses pinned down upon these people. They were God's enemies, and God had promised to have war with them from generation to generation, and he would blot out the remembrance of the Amalekites over a period of time. If Saul had done what God told him to do, we wouldn't be reading this. But he didn't do it. Anytime, I emphasize again, anytime we fall short in what God tells us, there's going to be consequences. God doesn't want uh, lackadaisical <laughs> obedience. He doesn't want partial obedience. God wants a fully committed obedience on behalf of his children. So we find Mordecai will not bow to him. And this really gets under the skin of Haman. Notice, that it came to pass when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand, for he had told them he was a Jew. The men, the other people around there, noticed he was the only one standing. Everybody else bowed, so they asked and talked to Mordecai out about it. And he revealed for the first time he was a Jew. Now I mentioned last time, for Mordecai and Esther to be Jews and to keep the laws of God like Daniel and the Hebrew children did, it, it would have been extremely difficult for them to have done that and remain hidden that they were Jews. So I know they were not as committed to that as Daniel and the Hebrew children were. Again, they were out of the will of God. They should have went back to Palestine. should have went back to the land of Canaan. But see, they had got, uh, they'd learned how to shopkeep here from the Gentiles. And they liked what they were doing here better than what they were doing before they were led away into captivity. So they just made a choice to stay. There was many others. In fact, I believe there was more that stayed than went back. But the two people we're talking about right now is Mordecai and Esther. Esther is the queen. Mordecai is not going to bow down to Haman when he comes by. Everybody else does. He's, he's the lone ranger from that point of view. He's the, last, he's the man that's standing here. So it's real clear, you know, that Mordecai was not bowing down. And so they talked to him about it and wanted to know why. And now for the first time, he reveals that he's a Jew. Now, that, takes a lot, that took a lot of courage. Mordecai, I don't think, had any idea what he was doing here was going to have such uh, tremendous consequences on the entire people, his people throughout the provinces, but it will. He also could lose his job, and he could also lose his life, he could lose his liberty, he could be put in prison because he is violating and disobeying the king's command. Notice what it says here in, um, in verse 2, um, they were all to bow and reverence Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. He would not do it. Now, Haman was full of wrath. Look in verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bound not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. Haman was a little man with a big position. <laughs> now, I don't know what his statue was, but he was little from the standpoint of his attitude and, and what bothered him and one thing and another. Everybody else is bound down. What's the big deal if there's one man that doesn't? And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were kept throughout the whole kingdom, even the people of Mordecai. Now the person he's got a beef with is one man named Mordecai. But when he finds out he's a Jew, he's going to take it out on every Jew that's in that kingdom. In other words, he wants to exterminate the Jews. He wants to see them all perish. Now this is not the first time this has taken place. 
But there's a text over here, uh, I believe it's Isaiah 54, 17, where the Lord said, No weapon that is formed shall prosper against thee. No weapon that is formed against thee, thee is Israel, no weapon formed against thee shall prosper. And no weapon is ever prospered against the Israelites to cause them to totally be banished and perish from off the face of this earth. It's been tried numerous times. The Babylonians tried it, it didn't work. The Assyrians tried it, it didn't work. The Egyptians tried it, it didn't work. Remember how it goes in Exodus chapter 1? Remember when the, the Pharaoh looks out and sees where the Israelites are multiplied to such an extent that he's got a great fear if they go to war, the Israelites would join the enemy and would overpower them, so he wants to diminish their numbers. So he causes the uh, taskmasters to put heavy burdens upon them and the more they afflicted them, the Bible says, the more they multiplied. It just had the opposite effect. Then he went to the midwives and said, when you do service to a Hebrew woman, says when she's about to have a child, if it's a male child, you're to kill that male child. Let the female go, but the male child must die. The Bible says the midwives feared God more than did Pharaoh. When Pharaoh inquired about it, their reasoning for this is that the Israelite women are more lively. <laughs> More lively, stronger, energetic, whatever. Every time we get there, it's too late. They've already had the child. <laughs> I'm sure Pharaoh saw through that. <laughs> but nevertheless, he came up with a third plan. And this time he gave the command to all of his officers, all the Egyptian people, that when a Jewish woman had a child, if it was a male child, that male child was to be drowned in the Red Sea. Didn't work. A man, a little baby was born there, which was Moses. And God would use this little baby Moses. That her mother, his mother took him and put him in an ark of bulrushes down in the river. And Pharaoh's daughter comes walking by, hears a cry, investigates, finds out it's a, a, a baby boy. She's going to take it in. <laughs> She's going to adopt this baby boy. And his own mother is going to nurse him and take care of him. And she's going to pay her to do it. And she never does know that that's a Moses' mother that's doing all that. So people have tried. Nations have tried. You find in modern, you know, in, in, in the 20th century, Hitler and the Germans tried it. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, never has, and never will. The Jews have been a hated people for centuries for a number of reasons. And one of the reasons they've been hated is because God gave us the Bible through them. Do you know that? We have the written word of God. It came to us through the Jewish people. These are Jewish writers who put pinned down these words. God used Jewish people, with the exception of one or two Jewish men, to pin down the words of God. We have the written word of God. It's come to us through the Jews. And somebody hates the written word of God. You know who hates the written word of God? The devil hates the written word of God. Satan hates the written word of God. Tried to reverse the word of God in the Garden of Eden with Adam. He tells unto Eve, you know, Eve tells him, what God had told Adam about eating the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and the day he eats there, he would surely die. And Satan says, I shall surely not die. Just puts a three, one little three-letter word, N-O-T, in what the Lord said, and totally reversed it, right? And Satan's been doing that for six centuries, 6,000 years. He hates the Word of God. That's why when you go to a Bible bookstore, you have to look in the very back somewhere to find a King James translation now. They put all the perverted translations out there in front of you, and, you know, trying to get God's people to buy something called the Word of God, but it's not the Word of God. It is not the Word of God. Translated to which language? And so, 
The devil hates God. He hates the word of God. And the devil hates the son of God. We have the son of God through the Jewish people, do we not? The Lord Jesus Christ, the written word and the living word have come to us through the Jewish nation. There may be other reasons I can give you tonight why people have hated Jews down through the centuries, but here's two supernatural reasons why the Jewish people are very hated people in this world and have been for a very long time. Haman, he's so angry, he's so full of wrath at Mordecai that he is going to devise a plan in which he's going to try to get rid of Mordecai and all the Jewish people at this time. Notice here in verse 6, Verse 7, excuse me. In the first month is the month Nisan. In the twelfth year of the king, they cast pur, that is the lot, before Haman from day to day, from month to month, to the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar. That's going to be a 12-month period of time. It's interesting that the first months here is the month associated with Israel's coming out of the land of Egypt. And while the Jewish people are preparing for the Passover, Haman is preparing a death warrant on behalf of all of them. Now, the Jews have a feast called the Feast of Purim. Once a year they have the Feast of Purim. And the Feast of Purim, you're going to find where they read the book of Esther out loud publicly. And when the word Haman is mentioned, they stomp their feet and they cry out, away with this man, away with this man, may his name be banished forever. And they associate the name Haman with anybody and everybody that's ever been their enemy and tried to do them harm. That's how wicked this man was and how much they remember this man and what this man attempted to do. You see, so far in the list of characters we have, we have some that are righteous, some that are wicked, right? If you read the Bible, especially Psalms and Proverbs, you're going to find where God is constantly bringing to our attention that in this world here, there's the righteous and there's the wicked. If you read Psalms 37, you'll see this played out very clearly. No less than eight times, maybe more, in the 37th Psalm, the wicked and the righteous are mentioned together. In the 16th verse, it says, better that a, uh, it's better uh, that a, a little that a righteous man hath is better than the riches of many wicked. Now think about that just for a second. The wicked may have many, many wicked, have many riches, but a little that a righteous man hath is better than all that combined. A little further on, you'll find where David says, I once was young and now I'm old. And I haven't seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. If you read the last two verses of Psalms 37, you'll find a picture actually of what's going to take place in the book of Esther. You'll find where the Bible says, For the Lord saveth the righteous, and the Lord delivereth the righteous, and those that trust in him, and the Lord will deliver the righteous, save the righteous from the wicked. In Matthew chapter 25, you're going to find a picture of sheep and goats. And the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord of lords and King of kings. As the shepherd is going to put his sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left, he calls the sheep on the right hand his righteous. And those on the left, what does he call them? Workers of iniquity. The wicked, in other words. You have here a contrast. You're going to have a king and Haman, the wicked. And you're going to have Mordecai and Esther, the righteous. 
Verse 8, And Haman said unto the king, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all people, neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore it's not for the king's profit to suffer them. Now notice here, when he speaks to the king, he doesn't even name the people. He don't even tell the king who they are. He just there's a people. And they're scattered everywhere throughout the province, and they, they don't obey your laws. And it says, uh, it just wouldn't profit you to suffer them to continue to live. Now, you know, this reminds me of, you know, I love to search the Bible for all the types and shadows of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here, my friends, Haman, doesn't remind, Haman rather reminds me of the devil himself. In John 8, 44, the Lord Jesus Christ said that Satan himself was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. You're going to find right here where Haman is going to get a death warrant written up, you might say, for all the Jews. He's a murderer. And he also lied to the king. He said, the people don't keep thy laws. Well, I'm not going to say every Jew kept the law of the king perfectly. I'm sure they did not. But it was not a problem. If so, the king would have already known about it. The king would have already heard about it, you see. And he says, they just wouldn't profit you. Well, I'm sure they were profitable. I believe they were beneficial to the king. He didn't know anything about them. He didn't know who they were in one thing or another. But you see, the king is, is so careless about this, he's going to take his ring off and give it to Haman, have Haman write whatever he wants to write. In other words, he's going to give him a blank check of all people, and he is the enemy of the Jews, he's going to give him a blank check. He's going to give his ring, he's going to write the laws, he's going to seal it with the ring, and there was a law of the Medes and Persians. When a law had been established like it, it was irreversible. And I might say that one more thing concerning when Mordecai would not bow, and do reference unto Haman, you might say, well, that was an act of civil disobedience. It sure was. But you see, when the laws of God and the laws of man contradict and conflict, it's our responsibility to do the best we can to keep the law of God and not the law of man. And we're going to be increasingly tested in this in the days ahead, especially the minister of the gospel. Remember those Midwives, I mentioned to you earlier, did they not disobey Pharaoh? They sure did. And we look over in the book of Daniel, chapter 1. Did not Daniel, uh, uh, you know, disobey the king's command? They were supposed to eat the very best of the king's meat and drink the very best of the king's wine. But he would not do that. That violate God's dietary laws. And God blessed him and God brought him into favor there where he was not, didn't have to do that. And the Hebrew children in the third chapter, the king's command, they were to bow down to that image when they heard the sound of the musical instrument, they had to bow down that image. When the musical instrument was played, did they bow down? They did not. <laughs> they did not. And in Acts chapter 5, you're going to find where the apostles were commanded not to teach nor preach in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what they said? They said, we ought to obey God rather than man. So Mordecai right here, yes, he's, got, he's disobeying the king, but he is not going to bow down and give reference to an Amalekite. Not to an enemy of God, you see. And so Mordecai, his character is beginning to come before us here, right? So he asked the king, verse 9, If it please the king, let it be written, they may be destroyed, and I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver. Haman had to be an incredibly wealthy man. He tells the king here, I'll give 10,000 talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it to the king's treasuries. And the king took his ring from his hand and gave it to Haman. 
And the king said to Haman, The silver is given to thee, the people also do with them as it seemeth good to thee. Then were the king's scribes called, I, I won't go into this, but you'll find where the scribes were called. They did all the writings, and then the messengers were appointed, and they got on their horses, and they began to ride throughout all the land, start right there in the palace of Shushan, and then riding to all the prophets. They had to take a long period of time to do that, but they got the job done, and the message they were bringing to the Jewish people, and in 11 months, or close to 12 months from that day, at a certain day of the month, than Jews, it be permitted legally for the people to kill all the Jewish people. A wicked man, to say the least. Look in verse 14. The copy of the writing for commandment to be given in every province was published to all the people. They should be ready against that day. Now it took about a year, so it did give the Jews a year of preparation about this. The post, P-O-S-T-S, that means the writers, the messengers went out, being hastened by the king's commandment, and the decree was given to Shushan the palace. And notice this in the closing part of verse 15. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. The king and Haman had just put out a death decree for thousands and thousands of people, and they just sat down to a feast. Didn't bother them in the least. But the people of Shushan, Gentiles and Jews, were perplexed. Everything seemed to be going okay. See, Esther had been queen for four years. For four years there had been peace. For four years Esther had reigned as queen. For four years Mordecai uh, looked after the king's business at the king's gate. Everything was fine till the king appointed and promoted this wicked man by the name of Haman. And the people are thinking, no doubt, well, what's changed? What, what's going on here? Why has this decree uh, been given, this decree been written, and this decree that this Jewish people, these were uh, Gentiles who had good neighbors in those Jewish people, and they could not understand it. Could not understand it. And when they read that decree, it appeared to be hopeless, didn't it? It just appeared to be hopeless. What can we do? It's going to be legal. They can come and they can kill us. It's going to be legal. And we, we don't have an army. What are we going to do? <laughs> and while they may not have known what they were going to do, there's a God in heaven, my friends, who knew what he was going to do. Because God now has Mordecai and he has Esther in positions he wants them to be in and he's going to use both these individuals to bring about a great deliverance and a great salvation on behalf of the Jewish people. Can't wait hardly to get into it. <laughs> Can't hardly wait to get into it. And I'm going to tell you something. About 6,000 years ago in the Garden of Eden, a man by the name of Adam transgressed God's law. What happened? Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore but one man sinned in the world, and death by sin, and death passed upon all men, for all of sin. It looks like it's hopeless, doesn't it? Romans 3.23, We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Kind of appears hopeless, doesn't it? Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. It appears somewhat hopeless, doesn't it? Twice in the book of Isaiah, you're going to find in Isaiah chapter 59, Isaiah chapter 63, where the Lord said he looked and there was none to help. There was none to help. It appears to be hopeless, does it not? 
But he says, therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me. It wasn't hopeless because of God in heaven. And he had a man in place. He had a man in place. His name is Jesus. And Jesus came at the appointed time, fully, totally, completely qualified to get the job done. And he turned a hopeless situation, my friends, into a total and complete deliverance on behalf of the people of God. Now, that's an eternal picture. We're going to see the hand of God and his wonderful providence operating and will deliver his people here in a timely sense. And no weapon that's ever formed against Israel has ever prospered. I don't know what the future holds for these people, but I know this. No weapon that's ever been, ever been <laughs> made has ever prospered against them. Go back and read the first three chapters. I think it may be beneficial to you. And for the next time when we meet, we'll be beginning in chapter 4.